Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John. Find notes in your bulletin, John chapter 13. I love these last chapters of John. I don't know of anything that so thrills the heart of a believer to know these precious words that our Lord gave just in those last moments before he went to the cross. Tremendous instruction here for his disciples in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And then an entrance into the very presence of God standing on holy ground in chapter 17 as he watched Christ in his great high priestly prayer. And then the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Man, this is great stuff. This is the word of God. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I believe that every Christian ought to know it well so that we will think and act and believe and decide and feel just as Jesus would. And to do that, we must know what he said and what he taught. We must renew our minds daily in the word of God that we would be transformed into the likeness of Christ in attitudes and disposition and actions. In John chapter 13, verse 18, we're continuing our great discussion of the upper room. And you remember that in the first 17 verses of chapter 13, Christ has just washed the disciples' feet, which was unusual to them that he took that role. But as a servant, he demonstrated the qualities of love and humility which ought to characterize the body of Christ, that if we're really going to see God work in our midst, we need these qualities in our midst. And beginning with chapter 13, verse 18, we are confronted with what is a very frequent problem in the midst of the body of Christ, and that is a counterfeit that is in the midst. John 13, verse 18, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray at me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, What thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spoke this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto you, where I go, you cannot come. But I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where goest thou? Jesus answered him, Where I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice or three times. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we would pray that you would teach us as your son Jesus taught these men so long ago, that we might understand the principles of discipleship that he outlined in these chapters. We might be the kind of men and women that you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In looking at the instruction of his disciples in these chapters, the first thing is the counterfeit in their midst, this amazing discussion of Jesus about what it was for one to betray him and how Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I'd like you to notice in verses 18 to 20 the reason that is involved, three things there. First of all, the explanation of the Scripture, according to verse 18, Psalm 41, verse 9, is quoted there. It's a fulfillment of prophecy where it says, He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. It's interesting the historical background of that psalm it was the case of Ahithophel and how he treated David. He was a traitor to him, even though he ate at the same table. And so we have here in the betrayal of Judas actually a fulfillment of the Scripture that not only dealt with the case of David and Ahithophel, but also of the future when Judas would betray a son of David, namely Jesus Christ. Christ says in verse 18, I know whom I have chosen. I don't believe that he's referring to salvation, but he's referring to apostleship. I know who I have chosen, namely 12 apostles. In chapter 6 and verse 70, which we have already studied, Jesus said to them, Have not I chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil? He said, I know whom I have chosen. The betrayal of Judas was no accident. Jesus knew it was coming. And it was a fulfillment of Scripture. According to verse 19 of chapter 13, this gave great evidence of the person of Christ himself. He said in verse 19, I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am, period. I am was the name of God that God gave to Moses. Tell him, I am sent you. When Jesus earlier remarked to them as who he was, he said, before Abraham was, I am. The point of this is that when you see the betrayal, you will know, because I've already predicted it, that it's a fulfillment of Scripture, you will know that I am really all I claim to be. It will give evidence of his person. And third, I believe the Lord here gives encouragement to his disciples in the light of this betrayal. In verse 20, he says, Verily I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. 
I think the important thing here in this very difficult verse as to interpretation is that these disciples were going to be sent out by Christ. And if one was going to betray him now, what was the guarantee that they all would not betray him? Or that because of this betrayal, others would not accept their message, saying, aha, we knew that Judas betrayed him. How do we know you guys aren't doing the same? Christ makes an interesting application here, that when you are sent by Christ, whoever receives you is actually receiving the one who sent you. Why? Because of your worthiness? No, I believe the issue here is the message, the message about Christ, which formulated the mission of those apostles, that you are accepting Christ, not them. And no matter what happens amidst the disciples, even the betrayal, the important thing is the message, that we are preaching Christ. So often, I think we have an application of this. People look at Christians and say, if that's the way Christians are, I want nothing to do with it and they have a valid criticism. But if that's been your view, I want to warn you that you are evaluated on what you accept about the message of Jesus Christ, not on the merits or the weaknesses of the Christians themselves. Judge Christianity not by Christians, but by Christ. And if you accept the message of Christ, that's what God wants. And even when he sent out his apostles, he sent them out to tell the gospel the gospel about himself, not to preach themselves. And they would know that whoever received them were really receiving Christ. And that's very important for all of us to learn. Beginning at verse 21, he gives this important revelation to the disciples about one who's going to betray him. And the first thing I notice in verses 21 to 25 is the anxiety that came over this group hearing this from the lips of Christ. The anxiety that they felt. The Bible even says that Jesus was troubled. This is an interesting section. I want to give you what I believe are four clear principles that we can learn from what happened in Judas betraying Jesus. Four clear, important principles. Number one, the one who betrayed Jesus was one of the disciples. According to verse 21, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you, literally it's out of you, shall betray me. And there's an emphasis there that you might just quickly pass over. Our Lord was showing that one right out of this group is going to betray me. And I learned a principle that John reiterates in 1 John chapter 2 that people even who be believe that Christ has not come in the flesh, who are antichrist in spirit, are actually in the midst of the believers. There has never been a situation throughout all church history where believers have gathered that there has not been some counterfeits in the midst. Now, some people are counterfeits simply because they are programming themselves to be Christian. They don't betray Christ. They don't deny him, but they have based their Christianity on something other than Christ, either their church membership or their baptism or their good deeds or something else. And they're counterfeits. They're not believers, but they're sitting in the midst of the believers. I don't believe that's what our Lord is referring to, nor what John was in the epistle of 1 John. I believe he's talking about people who appear to be Christian, who are sitting in the midst of the believers, but are counterfeits and are dedicated to the destruction of Christianity, if you can believe that. 
and all the way church history, all of the history it has produced has proven that to be so. And I warn the believers here, just because people sit here, just because they assemble together on Sunday, is no guarantee that everyone sitting here will one day be caught up to meet the Lord in the air when he comes. I hope no one would be sitting here if Christ came right now and we were all cut up, caught up to meet him. I hope no one would be sitting here. But I'm not foolish enough to know what, that the Bible teaches there are counterfeits. There are tares among the wheat. And some people may be sitting here without assurance of where you're going to go when you die, without assurance that if Christ would come, you'd be on your way to heaven with him. It's a serious matter. And you may appear to be Christian, and everybody may know you to be such. I remember one teenage gal coming to me recently and saying, you know, I grew up in this church, and my parents are Christians, and I'm supposed to believe all these things, but I don't, Pastor. I don't believe them, and I don't understand it. And I want to know because I'm scared to death of the consequences. I don't know where you stand, but you may be sitting here raised in a church, maybe Christian parents, whatever. But if you don't know Christ, when Christ comes again, you'll be left. When death knocks at that door, that's all over. It's all over for you. Jesus said, one out of you is going to betray me. And that's the first principle I learned from this story in John 13. The second principle, I learned that our Lord was deeply affected by this. I learned that our Lord was deeply affected by this. Verse 21 says that he was troubled in spirit. There are only two other occasions in the Bible where that's used. In John chapter 11, verse 33, at the time of the resurrection of Lazarus, when all the Jews were grieving, when Mary and Martha lacked hope in his power, the Bible says that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit. In chapter 12 and verse 27, something we've already studied just a couple of weeks ago, in verse 27 he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? He was talking about his coming death and his hour of suffering, and he was deeply troubled. Only used these three times. The word indicates a deep disturbance within the soul. Here's the Son of God, who upon saying these words, one out of you shall betray me, was deeply disturbed in his own heart, deeply troubled. Not because he didn't know what was going to happen, but I believe, as is indicated in chapter 17, when he prayed in the garden, he prayed specifically for Judas. I believe here in this occasion when he handed the sop to him, it was one last gracious invitation to Judas. Listen, for us to conclude that Jesus didn't feel strongly about Judas is a mistake. He loved Judas. Yes, the scripture was being fulfilled. Yes, Jesus knew what was happening. It didn't take him by surprise. But he loved Judas. I believe that Christ is deeply affected by every man's ignoring him, by every man's rejecting him. Christ loves you more than you will ever understand. And there's much that we can understand about his love from the Bible. We learn that he does love us, no matter what we're like and no matter what we've done in our life. And even a Judas is the object of his love. And I plead with you that if you are a counterfeit, you're not really sure of your relationship to Christ. God loves you. He wants you to be sure. He wants you to come unto him. The third principle I learned from these verses is that his disciples were confused and did not have understanding. Verse 22, 
They looked on one another, doubting of whom he spoke. And there's several things that I believe they were thinking. One was guilt, certainly. Guilt that I might have done something. It suggests the possibility and the potential in the heart of every person to do the same thing that Judas did. So often people will say, well, you know, I would never betray Jesus like Judas, or I would never deny the Lord like Peter. How foolish is that kind of thinking? The potential of betrayal and denial is lying resident in the heart of every one of us. And if it were not for God's power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there isn't a person here that could commit the greatest sin against Jesus Christ. In an hour of temptation and provocation and persecution in church history, thousands of Christians compromised their faith in Christ because they didn't want to lose their neck with the Romans. It's easy to betray Christ. It's easy to deny him. It necessitates the power of God to sustain you in that hour of trial. Each of these disciples knew in that moment that the potential and the possibility was in their own heart. These same men, a few days later, were scattered about, gone back fishing, deciding that there's no hope. Just on the next day when Jesus died, the Bible says that all the disciples forsook him and fled. It wasn't just Judas. It wasn't just Peter who denied him. They all ran away. They were scared to death. And you can imagine how they felt sitting around that table having dinner with Christ and hearing him say that one of you is going to betray me. Who is it? They really didn't know. They knew the potential was there in every heart. The fourth thing I see in this particular section about the betrayal of Christ and what Christ said and the effect of it is that Christ revealed the betrayal to one who was close to him. According to verse 24, Peter beckoned unto him, that is the one that Jesus loved. Notice verse 23, one Jesus loved, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? I do not believe that what Jesus said in verse 26 was public. It was private. It's only recorded in John. John wrote the Gospel of John. He was the only one who heard it. I believe it was privately spoken. I asked myself the question, why did Christ reveal this to one disciple out of all of them? Why didn't he just announce publicly it's Judas? After Judas left the meeting, why didn't he just say, now men, the guy who left is the one? He told it to one man. And the only key we have is in verse 23 that he was a man whom Jesus loved. And that's expressed even more beautifully in verse 25 as he's lying on Jesus' breast. That was possible because they lied on couches to eat. He was close to Jesus. That young man was so close to Christ, he knew more about Jesus than anyone else. Why? What was the purpose of this? I believe the answer is found in the testimony of history that John was uniquely prepared by God to be the number one eyewitness, the only one out of all the disciples who did not die a martyr's death. He lived to be an old man. His lifespan covered the entire first century. He was the number one theologian of the church, not Paul. Church history records that. John was around to train 
tremendous disciples who became leading figures in the growth of the early church. John took care of the mother of Jesus, and he learned more about Jesus than any other man. John loved Jesus. He's the one who wrote that we ought to love one another. And I believe that God uniquely prepared this man and gave him insights because of the relationship he had with Jesus that the other disciples did not have. It's obviously they didn't. Obvious that they didn't. But the issue is why. And I think we learned something from this. The one who is vitally related to Jesus Christ, the one who is close to his heart, is the one who receives insights as to what's happening and what God's will really is. In verse 26, notice the action of Christ. He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now the question often is, is this sop the same as the bread in the cup as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Because most men have argued if it isn't the same, then there's no record of the bread in the cup in the Gospel of John. And yet John's talking about many details in that evening that the others just passed by. No, I don't believe that's the, that's the bread in the cup at all. As to why John ignores that, I don't know, except that Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with it quite thoroughly. John rather is talking about a simple act. If you will examine Ruth chapter 2, verse 14, you'll find the same thing. Dip the morsel or the sop in the vinegar. It's a common practice. You simply broke off of a major loaf of bread sitting on the table, broke off a piece of it, and dipped it in something to make it soft. That bread is hard. I don't know if you've been in the Middle East lately, but I want to tell you, if you go there, listen, that, some of that bread is really hard. You talk about going down to the bakery for day-old bread, they'll let it sit around for months. But they take that bread and they dip it in something, a vinegar, a solution, or something. They'll dip it in that. And it was a common courtesy to dip that in and hand it to the person next to you, you know, like you'd serve something. The fascinating here, the drama of this is really neat. As Christ reaches out, breaks off a piece of bread, and dips it in the sop and hands it to Judas. Now, none of the disciples would have known what was going on. That's a simple little thing. But he told John, to whomever I give it, that's the one. Can you imagine, as he handed to that, what John must have thought and felt? And that betrayal in this whole story is just recorded in John. Third, notice the activity of Satan. The Bible says in verse 27 that after the sop, Satan entered into him. Now, I believe Satan was affecting him definitely and influencing him all the way up to this point. But here's total possession. In other words, to betray Christ as he did demanded that Satan possess him. Satan entered him. Why after the sop? The sequence there is interesting. Immediately after the sop, Satan enters into him. And I agree with most on this subject that the reason that happened that way is because Judas refused the last opportunity Christ gave to him. That in that simple act, he was saying, Judas, it's not too late. I know all about it. I know what you're going to do, and it's not too late. And his refusal to do anything about it, immediately Satan enters into him. It's all over now. It's fixed. He's going to betray Christ. 
forth, notice the association that the disciples made about Judas, verses 28 to 30. They didn't understand what was going on. Only John knew. It says, verse 29, they thought because he had the bag, meaning he was the treasurer of the group. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that all church treasurers are of the devil. I read that in one book. That proves that all church, well, listen, somebody has to handle it. That's why the Bible teaches that godly men should. Men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and of wisdom whom we can appoint over this business. But it is interesting. They thought, well, he's just going to buy some things that we have need of at the feast. Now, a lot of people at this point have felt the Bible's contradicting itself. They said, now, wait a minute, they're eating the feast. Then why in the world would they think when he left that he was going to buy for the feast? Answer. I believe that our Lord Jesus died on Wednesday. Not on Friday, not on Thursday, but on Wednesday. I believe the Passover was that day, and I believe the next day was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And I believe also that when they went to prepare for the Passover and went to the upper room, that they were the part of an ancient Jewish custom of taking the Passover. The night before he went to the cross, they were there and they had a supper. I believe it was a part of the total Passover proceedings. I believe that also about the bread and the cup. You see, the church is more Jewish than most of us understand. But as they were taking that dinner that evening, they were participating in the general functions of the Passover, but it wasn't all over yet. You know, the lamb was to be killed between the two evenings. And in the Jewish Passover, you have two Seder suppers. One the night before, and one following after the lamb is killed. And actually, they sometimes have a third. For instance, this year on the calendar, they're going to have three. And by the way, we're planning to have a Jewish Passover Seder here on the third Seder night this year of Passover. We're going to have it here in our church. So what's happening here is that they've had the first Seder, the first part. And they've had the bread and the cup, too because that bread and the cup were a part also, also of the Passover. Did you know that? And the third cup of the Passover was called the cup of redemption. How beautiful that Christ would take the very thing that they were experiencing as Jews and say, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Boy, what an application. They couldn't miss it. He's the Passover lamb. And then to find that the very next day, which was not on their minds. They didn't think this was going to happen, but the very next day between the two satyrs, they would think they would go out and kill the lamb and bring the lamb back and fix it. But to imagine what happened in between the two evenings, the trial, the arrest of Christ, the betrayal, and then to put him on the cross and for him to be killed on the very day they would have killed that lamb and had dinner with him that night. No wonder he said in that night just before he went to the cross that I'm not going to eat this anymore until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And that was true because he never ate the Passover lamb, but rather was the Passover lamb himself and died for the sins of the whole world. What a fantastic situation we have here. Right in the midst of it brings us to verse 31, his instruction about the new commandment, the new commandment. Some call it the 11th commandment, the summary of the commandments. I'd like you to notice, first of all, in verse 31 and 32, the necessity of God being glorified. What is the Bible talking about here when Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him? 
and that God will then glorify him. I think the issue here is that the glory involved is the cross of Christ, the fact that Jesus was going to die. Now is the Son of Man glorified. He's going to die on the cross. You know, in Galatians 6, 14, Paul wrote, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then God would glorify him by raising him from the dead. You said, how did God get glory through the death of Christ? Because the Bible says he would receive glory when a seed would come from him who was bruised, and God would see the travail of his soul. Isaiah chapter 53 it pleased the Lord to bruise him because God would see a seed that would come forth from that death. When the corn of the wheat grows into the ground and dies, it has to die to bring forth fruit. God saw the death of Christ. The Father saw the death of the Messiah. And it pleased him. It brought glory to him. Why? Because of the seed that would come from his death. As multitudes, even today, believe in Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of his death, God is being glorified continually through the act of the cross and its effect in history. And this, I believe, becomes the foundation of the new commandment, the cross of Christ. We love him because he first loved us. Well, let's look secondly, verse 33, the need of this commandment. I believe the need is clear from verse 33 when he says, yet a little while I'm with you. I'm going away, his soon departure. What are you going to do now that I'm gone? I've loved you. What are you going to do now without my love? Answer, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Let's look at the nature of this command commandment. Three things about it. Verse 34 and 35. A new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. I'm going to be gone. I can't love you anymore in the way that I have. Certainly I'll always love you. But this personal contact, this relationship we've had, I'm leaving. Now I want you to have the same relationship one to another. Uh, before I tell you those three things, let me say what really blessed me as I was studying this. You know what really blessed me? Is that God wants you and me who are believers to have the same relationship one with another that Jesus had with those disciples. Think about that for a moment. As close as Jesus was for three years with those, those men, all they went through, all he taught them, how much he loved them. And he said, I want you to love one another just like I've loved you all these years. What a, what a thing. Tremendous. Many of us are not enjoying that. We're not experiencing that. Let's look at the nature of this in three ways. First, it always requires an object. You just don't love in the air. It says love one another. Love one another. It's a reciprocal love. Whenever you give love, you receive it. Love one another. It requires an object. Secondly, it requires a standard, or else we'll be loving in the wrong way. He says, love as I have loved you. That's the standard. And in the Greek text, it indicates a point of time. I loved you. When? At the cross of Christ. That means that I must love my brother by realizing that my whole life is to be sacrificed in his behalf. If it means death, it means death. I lay down my life for my brother, says 1 John 3, 16, and that is love. Three, 
it results in identification of his disciples. This will, will result in identifying who is really his disciples. He says, verse 35, By this shall all know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. You know, a thing struck me when I was studying this this week that I hadn't really thought of before. I don't know why. I've always thought about those on the outside, you know, knowing that we are his. But I thought of another truth that I think is very important, that those in our midst also know. In other words, God brings assurance to all of us that we belong to him when we are loving one another. Tremendous. We know then, all, meaning all the believers know, that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. An application, yes, but think about it. Then this final statement about commitment in verses 36 to 38. Interesting that Peter would say what he said in the light of what has been said about the betrayal of Judas. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I go, you can't follow me now, but you follow me afterwards. Peter said, listen, why can't I follow you? Don't you like Peter's gall? <laughs> I always like Peter for that. Really, you feel like putting a tape on his mouth and saying, will you be quiet? This is the Lord. I mean, just follow what he said. But you know, we need somebody like Peter, somebody to open his mouth and find out what's going on. Peter said, listen, I, I, I can't stand this. I mean, I want to go with you. Where are you going? Why can't I go? And to reassure the Lord, don't you like that? Have you ever done that? Reassured the Lord? He reassured the Lord by saying, I will lay down my life for, for your sake. Listen, there isn't anything I will do. I won't do for you. I'd even die for you, so why couldn't I go with you? Peter didn't know himself. Let me give you three quick things here. One, we all need a dependency upon the Lord's directions. God had given his directions. That wasn't enough for Peter. It isn't enough that, hey, listen, I, it's like Peter saying, I'm for this love and all that sort of thing, but that's not enough, man. I want to know where you're going. What do you mean you're leaving and all we have left is just loving each other? I want to know where you're going. Listen, the Lord was simply saying, trust me. I know what I'm doing. You see, he wasn't done yet. In the next chapter, he said, listen, I'm not going to leave you like little orphans. I'm going to send you another comforter just like myself. I know what your problem is. But we all need to depend upon what the Lord says to believe it. Isn't it interesting you never find that conflict in John at all? I mean the, the person of John. He was close to Christ and he seemed to understand. And secondly, the danger of mere words. Mere words. Verse 37, I'll lay down my life. Why, Peter denied him, as you know. Mere words. Just saying it. Yes, I'll go where you, where you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. All kinds of things we say. Mere words. Very dangerous. And third, a denial resulted that proves to all of us that commitment is deeper than simply saying it. The denial that resulted proves to all of us that commitment is far deeper than merely saying it. I don't have the time, but I wanted to go into Mark 14, Matthew 26, and Luke 22. Write them down and study them yourself. Mark 14, Matthew 26, and Luke 22. And I want you to read the full story about what happened at the denial of Peter. 
It is not all there in John, but the other Gospels will tell you because there was a lot of interchange. And then Peter had made a lot of statements that he was more faithful to Christ than all the rest of them were, that even though all these would betray you, I would never do that. Yet he did. Commitment, friends, whether you come to receive Christ as your Savior or whether you are a believer looking at what God wants to do in your life is far deeper than merely saying it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we realize that among believers there are those who are counterfeits. We're amazed at that and surprised that people could be in the midst of the Christians and yet not really possess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To think that for three years these men walked around with Christ and yet one was a traitor. God, we pray that it might speak to all of us about the potential of our heart and our desperate need of Christ and the power of God. And Father, when we think of what Peter said, we can identify with him. We recognize how easy it is to say that we love you, that we will serve you, that we will go wherever you want us to go, that you are first in our life. But we see again how dangerous mere words are. Some of us have said things in the past that we're not even keeping now. We've made promises to you that we have never fulfilled. God, I would pray for those here in our midst who are not really sure that if they would die right now, they'd be with Christ in heaven. God, we thank you that all of our sin was paid for by Jesus Christ, that there's eternal life given to everyone who will believe. God, help them all right now in this moment to believe that Jesus is the Savior, that no one else can save but him. And Father, I do pray for those of us who know you. God, help us to understand what you want in our lives the commitment, the dedication you want. It's far deeper than just the mere word saying we'll follow you and we'll do whatever you want us to do. I pray that you'd stir our hearts so much that some of us with our unfulfilled promises and our commitments that have just fallen on barren ground, God, I pray that right now in this moment you'd stir our hearts back to dedication to Jesus Christ, greater than we've ever experienced before, that we would truly be able to say and do, to be obedient to whatever he wants in our life, that he would be Lord and Master and we his servant. Some of us need to tell him for the first time that we would do anything he wanted us to do. Help us, Lord, to make that commitment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.